Welcome to Holyrood Ungagged, the Bobby Charlton of political podcasts. This is season six, episode nine. I am Neil Anderson, your host, broadcasting from the neglected north of Glasgow, and I have with me for this episode, Jen. Hello, uh, my name is Jen Bell. Um, I'm a community educator, trade unionist, and Rainbow Greens co-convener. And Cal. Hi, I'm Cal Johnston-Dempsey. I'm a councillor for Bovo and Uddingston on South Lancashire Council. Excellent. Right, well, um, I think it's been a busy weekend for most folk, not for me. I've been under the weather a wee bit, so I've been sitting in uh, my flat, uh, keeping warm and, and resting, but do you been up to anything interesting? Yeah, yeah. Well, big big weekend, Remembrance, uh, Armistice Day, then Remembrance Sunday. Um, yeah. So that that's that's kept me busy this weekend, and then obviously I've like a, like a lot of councillors, I've got a certain job, so that's um I've been I've been doing nights on that. So yeah, it's been a hard one, but um, no, that's, that's tough going, but worthwhile. Yeah. Um, I mean, just same all for me, just like studying, working away. Um, I mean, I was I was at the armistice, I was at the armistice day demo uh, in Glasgow on the Saturday. Um, it was amazing, and um. I was also at uh, the gathering um, in Edinburgh. It's like this, it's like this bird sector conference run by the SCVO. Um, it was pretty good. Um, had a lot of interesting chats with a lot of folk in the bird sector, and yeah, just just nice wee nice wee trip um, out of out of Glasgow. So yeah, it's good. Oh, I'm glad. Uh, two of you've been busy. I've been sitting on the city, <laughs> but. Let's get ungagged. Okay, our first topic is about the continuing saga of messages being handed in to the UK Westminster COVID inquiry um, and the First Minister of Scotland being pulled up on various places for not sending WhatsApp and other electronic messages in, and and the retort being not handing them in already was that they interpreted the request too narrowly, uh, which some people are not too sure about. But now they have handed in uh, 14,000 messages, and uh, they said that key decisions and decision-making were recorded on the Scottish Government corporate record. So what do we think? Is it necessary to have informal messages, as they've been called, to be in an inquiry like that? And the Scottish Government not providing them? Was it misinterpretation? Was it some kind of evaluation where they're trying to get away with not getting them in? Was it innocent or was it not? What do you think? Go. So obviously I'm not a member of the Scottish government, so I'm I'm not privy to what's in those messages, but I can make fair assumption based on the fact that, you know, I'm a councillor, um, and we've got a council group WhatsApp. Now, I know that no decisions about group policy or, you know, any any sort of strategic drive are included in those WhatsApps. Um I, you know, it's, th- it's things like who's bringing the biscuits into the office, can you come and lock this door for me, things like that, so I can get in the office. Um, I, I I don't necessarily know whether those 
sort of things need to be. But of course, there's been a there's been an order produced, and and they are required to be uh, released. And I know that um, Humza had said at the last FMQs that they released. I think the number was fourteen thousand unredacted uh, WhatsApps already. Um, I, I think I think something interesting is uh, we, we may not like him. Uh, <laughs> Alistair Campbell was saying that T Tony Blair actually the administration they moved to post-it notes. Uh, the kind of the precursor to WhatsApps, oh. um, so that nothing was unofficial, uh, so that it couldn't be fired. And I know that they said that Tony Blair uh, really regretted the FOIA Act. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know, as you say, whether whether they really need to be. But you know, they ha they have been released now, and um, obviously we're not privy to what in individual members' statements to the inquiry. Uh, interesting that Tony Blair regrets the for uh, the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, very interesting. Um, I guess like, um, all I want to add to that is like, you know, again, I'm not, you know, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a minister. I'm not in, I'm not in the government. I'm not like, you know, privy to all this, um, all this kind of stuff. Like I was working in retail all through COVID. Um, so, you know, that was why I earned my stripes. But, um, you know, I think that in like in the modern political like milieu um like this is how people communicate um like you know it's 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 not all done through emails and and, and carrier pigeons like this is just it's just how like people naturally communicate and it's like you know especially if you're dealing with like um you know the comms team or something like that like you know that is like the quickest way to reach people um it's the most organic way that people reach each other so um i didn't quite understand why there was this, there was this coyness around it. Um, like I think it's just perfectly reasonable that like that, you know, should be transparent and available to the public because you know we need to know, like if we need to know like what um our elected representatives are doing, and that is how they communicate. Then it's the same as like, you know, any kind of correspondence, like you know whether it's whether it's post-it notes, whether it's um emails, whether it's um, like official letters, like it's it's all the same thing. So I think it's perfectly reasonable. Well, and and some of the the ones that we've heard that Dominic Cummings said, for instance, I don't think progresses uh, the inquiry any further. Just I mean, it's amusing in some ways to know that he was sending out messages, you know, um, using really bad language and really criticising government ministers. But I don't think that part doesn't get as anywhere on as to try to, to do anything the next time. But there will, pro there will be a lot of things that will. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that one thing we can probably be sure of is that when these messages do come into the public sphere, there might be a, a wee F word or S word getting, getting thrown around, but I don't think we're going to see anything the likes of what we've seen uh, from the, the Westminster Inquiry. Yeah, um, sticking then with the uh, with Scottish Parliament, we had last week revelation came uh, come out that uh, Michael Matheson <laughs> ran up uh, eleven thousand pounds in roaming charges uh, using his iPad whilst abroad on holiday Morocco, wasn't it? And seemingly all down to the fact that it was an out of contract SIM card that was still in the uh, the iPad and it was 
own legitimate business to do with his constituency. But it started off that he paid three uh, grand of it, and the Scottish government paid the rest, which means the cost, the taxpayer was still paying all of it, and now it looks like he's going to pay all of it. Um, but there's, there's several questions come from that about expenses. And on the IT side, for me, why wasn't the SIM card changed by somebody? I mean, there should be a proper process in there if they change contract to a different provider. I would have thought IT should have come around and swapped them all. Or do they just send them in a, in a wee package to everybody who's got one? So presumably other staff have one as well, and they're supposed to change it. And, yeah, is there questions that come up from that from either of you two? Well, I guess I'm wondering, like, how do you rack up £11,000 um, in the space of a week? Um, it kind of boggles my mind. Um, I, I guess, like, you know, your man says he's doing, like, constituency and, and parliament business, but he was also on holidays. Like, that's, that, doesn't, that doesn't quite square up with me. Um, and, I mean, from, from what I know, the IT team did ask him, uh, ask Michael Matheson to, you know, change the SIM card in the iPad. Um, it was like back in that was back in February last year. So there's there's a there's a question of due diligence there, really, because oh, indeed, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll preface what I'll say with um saying that I'm I'm always kind of weary of talking about parliamentarians' expenses as a as a former employee of an MP, um, and quite often when folk were saying you're claiming all these expenses, what they're actually talking about was my ability to feeding house myself <laughs> but in in this instance yeah i don't i don't think you can defend a living k was that living yeah living um of uh of 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 mobile expenses i don't really know how you as you say how you can rack up a living grand um that's what i'm wondering i i, I mean I, I felt bad when i went to france before roman charges would have abolished and got 200 quid or 200 euros um in the space of four days but um yeah it's uh it's un unconscionable i think um rather than be a act of malfeasance as as some are trying to make it look like i think i think more likely it's a, a yeah like you say an act of lack of due diligence or or maybe just you know it's it, it's likely not even Michael himself, it's it's probably an office manager who's not actioned that forum or you know a mem member of staff. Uh, but yeah, he's 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 committed now that he will be repaying it himself, not from parliamentary expenses, which I think is the right move. Oh. Um, well, it's the, it's the only move. Like you know, whether it's like malfeasance or recklessness, like if you you know if you squander that much of public money, like. You know, I think the most responsible thing to do is to is to reimburse it. And I think like, um, you know, plenty of people in their line of work um, will have expenses to pay for them by their employer. You know, like, and there's like a certain there's a certain amount that is reasonable um, for expenses to be covered. And then beyond that, it's like you know, it's kind of like on you to um, to foot the bill for that. And you know, it's at the end of the day, like the money that they are being given, it's not their money, it's everyone's money. So, like, the, it needs to be treated with the kind of respect that that deserves, which, I mean, to his credit, like, I mean, 
um, you know, he just dragged his feet on it, but he's like, he's decided to pay it up. But really, like, it all could have been avoided, is what I'm saying. Well, I'm surprised that if it was one pound per megabyte, going up to 11K would make it 11 gigabytes of data. Um, and if it was just all kind of text trans, um, transmissions and stuff, that shouldn't take an awful lot in there. But so it could have been a, a pound per, per megabyte, but the rate might be even higher. You never know that it was all this small amount. Goodness knows. I think, I think maybe we have to question who negotiated that rate with Vodafone. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and now we have an early word from our sponsor. Our sponsor this week is Sense of Nature Pet Service, based in Central Scotland. Sense of Nature gives you a hands-on, personalised experience with a variety of exciting creatures, from snakes and skunks to tarantulas and turtles. Sense of Nature has something for everyone. They offer sensory sessions, one-to-one and group sessions, educational encounters for children of all ages, and they are available for private events upon inquiry. Animal welfare is at the forefront of everything they do, and if appropriate, a risk assessment can be carried out at no additional cost prior to your booking. To get 5% off your next booking with Sense of Nature, quote Holyrood Ungagged 5 at time of booking. To contact Sense of Nature, you can do so by email on sense.of.natureinquiries at outlook.com. You can also find them on most social media platforms by searching for Sense of Nature. And our third topic tonight might take a bit longer discussion than our our first two. Overall, heading is about uh, ceasefire marches that have been going on in the past few weeks. Firstly, though, we're going to look at the SNP uh, proposing a vote on amending the King's speech to call for a ceasefire between Israel and Gaza. And uh, Hamza Yusuf has written to Anis Sarwar, uh, and Anis Sarwar has said himself that there should be a ceasefire, but to get him to urge the two Scottish Labour MPs uh, to back the ceasefire vote, whilst other Labour MPs are purported to be going to abstain in that vote for the ceasefire. Does this kind of petty politics actually uh, achieve anything? And is it, is it going to help in stopping people being killed in, in that war or any war that was, was going on? I mean, there's, there's no neutral position on that. Like, you can't abstain from an emotion like that. and and like wash your hands of it like either you want a ceasefire um in gaza or you don't like there's there's no two ways about it and um i mean it, it absolutely it absolutely galls me that um you know that would be treated as like a like a party political issue like rather than a humanitarian issue that it is yeah i mean i, I can completely agree with you there jen um and i, and I think that as you say, although it's not a party political issue, it kind of shows that the uh, the rift that's grown um, between uh, UK Labour and its Scottish unit. Um, and I, I think the way that Murdo Fraser's often spoke about a separate Tory party in Scotland, that it would actually be of benefit to the Labour movement if they um, if they had their own separate but sister party. Kind of similar to the way that they do in the North Ireland, where the the SDLP are are affiliated uh, with Labour, 
um, but are able to have their own policies on things, um, such as as things like this. Um, I mean, it's 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 an absolutely shocking state of affair. Uh, I'd actually, I'd actually helped write a motion, um, and 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 seconded it at South Lancashire Council um, a, a few weeks ago, our, our full council meeting, um, um, to allow us to discuss the atrocities because I do think that there's there's value in international solidarity movements, um, but unfortunately because it would put again because it would put the Labour members in an awkward position, the the provost just shut the motion right down, wouldn't accept it, and. Uh, weren't even allowed to discuss it. And I think that Labour and Westminster were hoping for this, the same sort of uh, situation, but I'm, I'm really glad that Stephen Flynn's team are, are, are going to push the issue to a vote and that there will be a vote. Um, it's, uh, yeah, as I say, it's a fair's. Yeah, I mean, I think there are plenty of... Um... Like there are plenty of like good folk in Scottish Labour, and there are plenty of good like there are still decent um like Labour MPs left in the House of Commons like who you know who who want peace, who want justice for Palestine, um and would work across uh, party political lines for that. I guess like what what I find absolutely horrific about um about like the whole like the whole situation down south is that. You know, you've got a leader of opposition, human rights lawyer, um, who's basically like cheering on um, and condoning and making excuses for the Israel, what the Israeli government is doing, um, which is genocide. Yeah. What else do you call it? Like, call it what it is. Like, it is like it is an act of genocide. Um, there's nothing that justifies the collective punishment of two million people. Um, nothing justifies it. And and to see the British government basically line up with the Israeli government um, and cheer them on as they as they do that, and and making like such like and trying to both sides it and making like such like um, petty cosmetic gestures like giving aid to Gaza while still selling weapons to Israel, um, or even like um, when that far when the far right. Mob uh, showed up at the cenotaph. You know, Rishi Sunak um, couldn't even basically. I uh, basically had to like smear um, like peace, uh, like demonst people at the demonstrations um, for Palestine. At the same time, um, just, just absolutely disgusted me, and I've I've never seen anything like it in my life. Yeah, I, the whole situation is. I, I don't know where it's going. Or where it's going to end up, uh, but you know, just was it? Is it? Is it still just us and the Americans that are, are backing Israel and not calling for a ceasefire? Uh, that's what I think. Every everybody else is calling for a ceasefire, and for some reason, uh, people in the UK and America seem to be using the word ceasefire as Israeli to stop uh, bombing, but. It, but it means that Gaza's, the Hamas, are, are allowed to keep bombing. And for me, no, everybody else, a ceasefire is both sides. But the, the people who are yeah. supporting Israel seem to be taking that term and meaning, oh, but you want Israel to stop, but Hamas to keep going. No, we don't. 
We're seeing ceasefire remain both sides, but they're skewing that off. Um, and the other ways that they're portraying things as well, isn't it? Well, every war ends with talking with your enemies. Um, and, you know, you choose, you basically choose to have that sooner or later. Um, and like, how, how many people have to die uh, before, like, you know, people want to build peace. Like, you know, peace is not, peace doesn't come about by accident. Like, war, war is easy. It's, it's very easy to, um, it's very easy to not talk and and just resort to killing. Um, it's very hard to to build peace. That takes effort. And, you know, to see the British government just uh, eat in the bet, Israel, the Israeli government, I struggle to find the words, to be honest. And certainly one person that's been skewing or tried to skew the the point of view in in the United Kingdom and here is our now ex-Home Secretary, uh, Suella Braverman. And her starting off initially was just saying that these were hate marches that were going on. And uh, in my opinion, they never were hate marches. They weren't the hate, they were about trying to protect life and protect people dying. And that has started to, to, to paint that picture in one way. I um, was glad to hear that she's now no longer her Home Secretary and being kicked out. And we now have an, an ex-Prime Minister who walks off the street and the government can go, oh yeah, we're making them a life peer and they can join the government. That's a different argument from what we're talking about, but I wanted to say it. I mean, uh, I mean, the one silver lining, like to see the back of Swella Braverman. Um, I mean, I won't shed any tears for her. Um, you know, she was a she was a horrific Home Secretary, um, like many of her predecessors, and indeed anyone. Like the entire institution of the Home Office is like I personally find abhorrent. But you know, the silver lining of it is that it shows like the 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 power and the momentum of you know, of like the peace movement of, you know, the support that is uh, the groundswell support um, behind Palestine and, and for peace. Like it was, it was overwhelming public pressure that got Swella Braverman sacked. I'm under no illusions. I don't, you know, I mean, I don't know Rishi Sunak, but I think that this is like more of a, this is more of a pragmatic move rather than, rather than one of principle. The lift is along your arm of like the terrific things that Swella Braverman has said and done in her tenure. Yeah, I didn't expect to see David Cameron back in government. That was surprising. Yes. Before I come to the cabinet reshuffle, I just want to say that I consider myself a friend, a very critical friend, but a friend indeed of the concept of an Israel. I have friends who are Scottish, English, American and Israeli Jews. And I believe that there should be a safe nation um, for Jews in a world which has often targeted Jewish people to Russian pogroms, to the Nazi Holocaust. Yep. But being a friend means being critical when it's required. And there must be a two-state solution. That is good for both Israeli and Palestinian people. Benjamin Netanyahu is his Likud party, his coalition government, absolute extremists, and is... They're, they're bad for Israel. They're bad for Israel's own security. And they're bad for any, any semblance of a lasting peace in the Middle East. Hamas terrorism is rightly condemned as barbaric. 
But Hamas terrorism does not justify what has been done in the Gaza Strip and, and the, the brutality that's been laid upon average Palestinian people, civilians. Israel are committing war crimes and I have to say, I hope uh, Lakud, Lakud's position is untenable. Um, Lakud as the, the leader um, of the coalition government there. And I know that both among the, the Jewish diaspora, there's a lot of support for, for him to go. Um, and indeed from, from Israelis that I know. But uh, coming on to David Cameron, uh, created Lord Cameron of Oinkton or whatever. Um, <laughs> obviously, it, it feels it feels to me that, that obviously Rishi will have met David Cameron yesterday um, at Remembrance Sunday uh, at the Cenotaph. And I'm a, bit, I'm a wee bit worried that he's he's just kind of he's just kind of walking around pointing at people, pointing at Tories, and saying that the last one he saw will will be good enough. Um, <laughs> it's and just just before we started recording there as well, I was on Twitter and I saw that that Theresa May was trending, and I was worried that that he'd done it again, but it turns out she's actually just cropped uh, Liz Truss out of a picture of all the the former PMs from yesterday. So at least we've not got her coming back into government either. It's yeah, it's it's crazy. I, I, I as you say, Jen, the, the one upside is that um for all he supports horrible policies, hostile environment, um the the the, the, the terrible things that he brought down on benefits <laughs> benefits claimants, he is not a fascist like uh our former home secretary. Well, I mean, like, not being a fascist is like the the barest. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's like, I mean, he's the architect of austerity. Uh, yeah. He's the art. He's like he was the uh, he was the architect of of Brexit in a roundabout way. Like he gambled with Britain's future in the European Union, and he lost. And instead of seeing it out, he he rode off into the sunset, and. Now he's just able to be reintroduced back in the government. Like this is like like what this really represents is like it represents the real holes in like the in Britain's constitution or you know like whatever whatever that means, right? It's basically a series of gentlemen's agreements and you know scribblings on the backs of bag packets going back centuries, revealing how like how the prime minister can just install anyone that they like. Mm any into any position in the cabinet that they want. Um and they get a peerage to go with it. Like even even when David Cameron stops being the foreign secretary, even when he leaves the cabinet, like he he's got a life peerage, right? He's go he is a feature in the British political system for life. And there's no way to get rid of him. And I I find that deeply troubling. And you know, like what is to stop more of this happening in the future? Like how many lords could fill up the cabinet and not face the scrutiny of the people, like the elected representatives that people actually chose? Well, I, I was listening to a bit of um, LBC uh, today, and I'm, I'm not sure whether this punter was having a joke or whether he was serious. But what he said, oh, yeah, that's great. We could bring in lots of other experts to the government. How about Chris Whitty for health and Martin Lewis? Uh, as Chancellor, you know, uh, 
I, I mean, like, yeah, they're already starting to think about this, right? And like, it's it's um, you know, it's a very like it, it's a it's a very dangerous road to go down, right? Like, you know, at that at that point, you're basically like it, it it's basically like morphed into a kind of like a presidential system where like you know the the head of government could just appoint whoever they want to their cabinet. You know, let's not be naive. That is probably going to be like people who are very financially connected. Who are, who are basically bankrolling the Conservative Party. It's, it's, the mask is completely off at this point um, for the British establishment and the employer class to bankroll them, right? Like um, Britain barely resembles a, a democratic country at this point anymore. It's being like the heads of government are basically installed by CEOs. Yeah. The, the, the thing is, though, if, if it was a presidential-style government where you know, genuine experts were being appointed and by by the, the head of government and then, you know, confirmed by parliament. That would at least be better in that, like you say, they, they wouldn't be a life peer. You know, they, they wouldn't get, what is it, something like 350 quid a day for the rest of their life? At least then, you know, that would be, that would be something democratic, which in so many ways I don't think the UK is. Yet another nightmare. Yes, indeed. But um, on news programmes and so on, they have been saying that David Cameron might be a really kind of wily appointment as foreign secretary because he's uh, been there before. He knows lots of people, uh, heads of inter heads of countries and other international things and stuff. And he might just be the person to go out to to Israel and, and help starting the peace process going on between Israel and Hamas. What's been been punted as, as a possibility. Given his previous accusations of uh, anti-Semitism, I remember uh, David Bedil. Um, I can't can't remember exactly the, the details of the, the controversy, but there was some form of uh, anti-Semitism debacle around David Cameron. Um, but so I don't think he will be the perfect man for that. I mean, given given his record in Libya, I don't really consider David Cameron as a as a harbinger of peace. Um, and deflate that kind of um, deflate that kind of narrative. Like, you know, if he's going to be so great, then you know, why is he being why is he being installed this way? Right? Like, you know, why is he being installed through the House of Lords where he won't face the same scrutiny that that a member of the House of Commons would? You know, at any point, it would be convenient for him to just have like a junior minister appear in the House of Commons um, to answer questions for him. He's never going to like he's never going to face the elected representatives that people actually chose at this time. Like in the in international politics, I find that deeply troubling. That one of the great offices of state is shielded from parliamentary scrutiny that way. I'm very conscious it's an audio format, so I just want to say for the benefit of the tape, I'm nodding my head a lot here. Appreciate <laughs> it. So, um, I think Jen, you said before that it was really due to public pressure that Suella was uh, was sacked. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the the strength of the pro Palestinian ceasefire marches going on the numbers? of people getting involved all across the UK. Do you think that, that there's any influence that that is having on the, well, the Scottish government and 
the Westminster government at the moment? Well, yeah, I think, um, you know, I think that politicians only really listen to two metrics. You know, it's money in the bank or numbers on the streets. And we have the numbers on the streets. And, um, you know, nonviolent direct action, like, you know, going to rallies, like demonstrating in public en masse um, is what sways these people in power. It's it what gets their attention when nothing else can. Um, and, you know, like in the, like in the Scottish context, like, um, you know, the Scottish Greens are, um, want a ceasefire. Um, the First Minister is calling for a ceasefire. You know, leader Scottish Labour is calling for a ceasefire. Um, you know, Ross Greer is bringing a, um, a motion to Scottish Parliament calling for a ceasefire. You know, the momentum is on our side. Um, and the vast majority of the public like in Scotland and in the rest of these islands, want the ceasefire. So I'm cautiously hopeful. And I guess like we, you know, we just need to keep doing what we're doing and see how it pans out. Yeah. yeah. Um, to, your, your question of whether the people in the streets have moved the Scottish and UK governments, I don't think it's moved the Scottish government because I think the Scottish government's been in the right place from the start, and especially Humza, I think he came out early um, and it was spot on um, and has been consistent since. But um, I think it's absolutely moved the UK government. I don't think that Suella Braverman would have been out of job if it wasn't for the the, the strength uh, of, of, of the protest, strength of movement on the streets. Mm. Um, uh, and in this, I'm a, I'm a hypocrite because I have been incredibly busy over the last few weeks and I have not been out in the streets. Um, but uh, no, absolutely. I, I would uh, agree with all of that. And I'll just say I haven't been out on any of the protests so far. Uh, one, as we were saying earlier, under the weather this week and other weekends, I've just had other things that have been arranged beforehand. Unfortunately, I think there's going to be more opportunity to, to join in. Be good if I wasn't, but right. Our, our last topic this evening is about the uh, Scottish Ecocide Prevention Bill consultation put forward by Monica Lennon, who is a Labour MSP. Overall, the thing that says seeks to deter mass environmental damage and destruction taking place in Scotland, and it covers air, water, soil wild fauna and flora, and it's imposing, talking about imposing the strict penalties. And uh, some of the examples that she's used, things already happened that would come under it, with the Brayer oil spill in Shetland in 1993, radioactive contamination, unsustainable fishing practices, and the proliferation of plastics in our seas to the danger of marine ecosystems. So it covers a broad area, and that from the, the oil spills, we go to the corporate uh, negligence, and there's kind of laws that cover various bits already, but it's trying to get them together. But on a big thing like that, how feasible would it be to actually uh, enforce that? You know, if an oil spill, yes, you can put directly to to somebody, but the the plastic in the water. How would you pin somebody down for that? So it definitely, for me, is a good thing to have. But do you think it'd be, be workable and 
And how how would it make a difference in practice? I, well, I won't I won't answer on on its workability and, and its enforcement because um it's not my area of expertise and I don't want to you know talk about things I don't know. But well well will says I think it's an incredibly good idea to impose sanctions on individuals rather than corporations. Finding a corporation, okay, yeah, sure, maybe maybe losing a few hundred thousand or a couple of million might make a difference. But saying if no, no, you personally will be behind bars. I think that's that's massive stuff. I do think that the, the name Ecoside's a, a wee bit clickbaity, but you know, there's something good to be said for marketing. Um and it's exactly the sort of big idea that we that we we don't see enough of actually. Of course, Monica's got previous on big ideas. Um it's the second big piece of legislation that she brought through, the other being the, the period poverty act. Um although I don't know if that's the exact name of that, but the, the sanitary uh, product uh, provision is excellent stuff. Um you know, I actually happened to bump into Monica yesterday, um, and was able to you know voice my support for the bill to her and, and wish her wish her well with it. Um, she was confident that it was getting cross party support, and that, um, so I think that it's it's likely that it will it will pass at Holyrood in, in some form, which is excellent. Um, it, it's good to see cross party working. Um, oh. and I'd obviously like to see a lot more of it. Um. Especially, you know, bills from the third party, which is not something you would see at Westminster. You wouldn't see an SMB bill, bill getting getting support. Even even good things like, for example, Angela Crawley's um, miscarriage leave bill that she brought at Westminster that um, went nowhere despite a lot of support. So no, I think this is um, very much in the the best traditions of our Parliament, and uh, I really really hope that it passes. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's an excellent bill, and I'm glad to see it coming forward, and it's so necessary. Um, I'm going to slightly gain say, Cal, um, on like the term ecocide being clickbaity. Um, I do I do disagree with that. Like, um, you know that the the term ecocide has been around since uh, 1970, and um, you know this is following like the international definition of ecocide, and like uh, this is following the precedent being set, um, set by like ecocide bills that have been passed in, you know, places like places like Mexico, Vietnam, uh, several countries in the EU. You know, I think it's I think it's vital not just, you know, for the practical purposes of it. It represents like a shift in it represents a shift in mindset um on how we treat our like the natural ecosystem in which we live, you know, in like the consumer capitalist worldview. Like nature is just a resource to be to be used, to be harvested. Whereas you know, when we recognize ecocide for the crime it is, um, like for how damaging and how permanent it is, you know, that is a shift in mindset. It's recognizing that we are that we are animals that are part of an ecosystem and that when we damage when we damage nature, we damage ourselves ultimately. And it's like that that was the mindset that was that was pioneered by our first in the in the eighties, you know, they understood very clearly that when it comes to environmental destruction, um any any gain is temporary and any loss is final. It needs to be treated with the severity, like the full severity of the act, of like what the act is. So yeah, um I'm I'm really glad to see it. Yeah, I really hope that it passes. Yeah. I mean if I can come back in there, what what I meant was that, you know, usually we'd see a, a bill like this named something along the lines of 
the Environmental Protection Brackets Criminal Responsibility Act. Um, mm -hmm. I'll admit, uh, ecocide's not a term that I'd previously heard ever. Um, um, but the point I was making is, I, I think I said there's something good to be said for marketing. But my, my point being that you know it's it's appropriate to use terms like that because it does change narrative. Um, uh, that was the kind of point I was making. I call it what it is. Call it spade a spade. Ecocide is ecocide. Oh, right. Sorry. I've been coughing away there. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Are you right there, Neil? Yeah. Oh, I think we're good. Yeah, uh, I could say at the, at the end of that, um, I don't know now. Brain switch on. Wish I was 100%. Sorry, I've been 100%. Sorry, folks, I'm trying to keep things going. Do you need um, to take a break, get a drink of water? Uh, no, I'm okay. Um, Because that was our, our, our four topics. Um, Is there anything else we'd like to bring up? Because we're a wee bit shorter than our standard hour. <laughs> it's probably me not doing things long enough. No, we just wrap it up there. Yeah. Well, a quick one tonight, yeah. Okay, that's that's fine. So you said about the ecocide thing. So I must say something about that. Uh, what am I going to say? Uh, yes, I'd agree with that. Also, we, we need something to try and keep the ecology safe to keep ourselves and other flora and fauna, as it said in that, um, on the go. Right, well, that is uh, run our topics for this evening. So I'd like to thank uh, both of the, the two of you for, for joining in. Uh, made a, a very interesting pod. And, uh, well, thank you for me. Good night to all. Good night. Cheers, good night, folks. You can find all of our podcasts at leftungag.org as well as written articles, and you can sign up for our free newsletter. You can also catch the Talking Sense podcast with Kat and Erin. And if there's anything you want us to talk about on Holyrood, you can tweet us at underscore ungagged, hashtag Holyrood ungagged, or send us an email, ungaggedleft at gmail.com, putting Holyrood ungagged in the subject line. You can also join our Signal community if you want to get in touch with that through any of our social media channels. And if you enjoyed this, please give us five stars on whatever podcast platform you use.